Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKinty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the members' forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKinty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on May 10th, 2022. Today on the program, I'm happy to announce a conversation with amateur researcher Susan Guest. Inspired by the recent investigative work of blogger and journalist James Rogowski, Susan has taken a deep dive into the legality of the proposed implementation of the World Health Organization Pandemic Treaty and the amendments to the international health regulations, which define the WHO's relationship with individual member countries. Much has been reported over the past month since the proposed amendments to the WHO Treaty were first brought forth by the Biden administration. These amendments appear at first glance to embolden the organization with overarching powers to intercede in any country's affairs whenever a public health emergency of international concern can be found. Ostensibly, these changes may make it possible for the Director General of the World Health Organization to declare a health emergency and impose lockdowns within any country targeted. Indeed, This latest consolidation of power in the hands of an international organization does take humanity one step further towards the imposition of an unelected world government acting under the auspices of public health. Is it possible, as many are saying, that this bold move by globalist forces will spell the end of national sovereignty as we know it? According to Susan, we're not quite there yet. While a surface-level analysis of the proposed amendments does appear to grant the WHO supranational powers to impose mandatory interventions in the case of a self-declared state of emergency, many nations entered into the initial 2004 treaty which created the modern incarnation of the WHO with legal reservations. In the case of the United States government, its membership in the World Health Organization is contingent upon what is known as the Federalism Reservation, which stipulates that the federal government does not have the power to dictate policies to state and local governments, per the U.S. Constitution. For the same legal reason there was not a universally applied lockdown mandate across the U.S. during COVID, so the federal government cannot enter into a treaty that defies the federalist principles enshrined within the U.S. Constitution. Enjoy this conversation that takes a deep dive into the legality of WHO membership and provides a thorough analysis of the forthcoming pandemic treaty, as well as the proposed amendments to the international health regulations. While the power grab may not be as legally binding as some suspect, Such a move certainly represents another step in the totalitarian tiptoe endlessly ceding local sovereignty to world powers. Susan promises to have a personal blog up soon, and I'll try to include links to her current research in the show notes below. 
If you like what you're hearing, please remember to like, subscribe, and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. We rely on listeners like you for the distribution of this alternative information. For more from The Shift, find hours of free content, sign up for the newsletter, subscribe for feature-length versions of each episode, go to www.theshiftnow.com. Become part of the conversation by friending Doug McKenzie on Facebook or following at McKenzie on Twitter. Without further ado, I'd like to thank researcher Susan Guest for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this 121st episode of The Shift. Uh, I am happy to introduce today my guest, Susan Guest. Uh, <laughs> she is a basically an amateur researcher, but she's very been become very passionate about uh, finding out about this recent these um, this recent expose by James Rogowski. If you're familiar, he's been breaking the story about the World Health Organization and these amendments to the World, the World Health Organization that uh, could potentially give, uh, give it the power to go into a country unilaterally uh, and um, call a, uh, a, a World Health event that they can then start to impose lockdowns and sanctions and all of these other things sort of um, extrajudicially or outside of the sovereignty of the country. That's the concern. And so Susan's been researching this. We're going to have a conversation about what James has uncovered uh, and then some of the legal um, the legal arguments that hopefully we can use to stem the tide against this kind of thing. So um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Susan got in touch with me because she, again, is so passionate about this issue. And I thought we'd have this conversation just to educate people about this, because it is so important to understand that these are the power plays that are happening on the international level, and then to understand the legalities behind it. So we know uh, what we can do uh, to to prevent this, to to still um, to still maintain the level of, of uh, internal sovereignty that we have uh, as per the United States Constitution. So, thanks, Susan, for coming on the show. Do you want to just uh, give people a little bit about your background and and why you got uh, involved in this issue? Absolutely. So, I have both an MBA and a bachelor's degree, a specialty in finance, and I was on Wall Street for over a decade. And I wrote the risk management policies for Citigroup, which put me um, in the spotlight of working with the Federal Reserve and the Bank of International Settlement and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency um, in crafting those uh, policies. Mm -hmm. And um, that took a few years. And then I drilled down into uh it's called the Samia region, Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa, including the Indian subcontinent. So I traveled extensively globally to teach in country. Um, so I got to know the world very well. Um, I resigned in 2000 after the then illegal takeover of Citigroup by Solomon Smith Barney, which Bill Clinton uh, got rid of the portion of Glass-Steagall that prevented that takeover. Right and made it legal retroactively. And um, then 9-11 happened and the Bush-Cheney reign of terror. <laughs> so <laughs> I decided to uh, take a certificate course from New York University that was in international relations. And it consisted of five courses that were uh, uh, diplomacy, uh, the treaty negotiation, the Vienna conventions, which guide treaty negotiation, and the UN and its agencies, which culminated in a week-long trip to Geneva, Switzerland, hosted by the United Nations and the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. 
So I had a bit of a, a background in treaty negotiation and in these international, supranational entities that um, actually, as it turns out, don't govern us, but we'll get into that. Um, so then when I saw this meme appearing everywhere all at once about three weeks ago, coming from James, I uh, it, the claims were that these new amendments to the international health regulations are going to cede our sovereignty, they're going to override our constitution, and the third claim was that it would only require two-thirds vote of the uh, body meeting uh, in two in less than two weeks, actually, um, called the World Health Assembly, um, that would bind every country who's signatory to this treaty. Mm-hmm. I said, "Whoa, that that doesn't jive with what I learned." Yes, it was twenty years ago, but let me go refresh everything to make sure that it you know my old knowledge is is still current. And right. so, um, I spoke to James at length and. Um, my overarching question in jumping into the fray was, what did govern us during COVID-19? Because we had this wide array of responses. And if you just look at, um, for example, Sweden, who never locked down, um, Tanzania, whose president tested pawpaws and goat milk and found, you know, they, they tested positive for COVID-19. Right. <laughs> and then the third country was Belarus, who who just basically said, no, no, we're not complying. Um, And this is going to become important later in our conversation where that president was offered $800 million from the IMF to comply with, with these global, you know, this morass that was coming out of everywhere all at once. And Mm -hmm. he just said, no. And so we know just from observing those three countries that the World Health Organization is not a legally binding entity. And we're also going to go into exactly how and why that is. Um, So I said, well, so what laws governed our responses internally here in the United States? Because there was such a complexity of responses here too, like with California, you know, dredging over skateboard parks with sand, right? So um, arresting paddleboarders surfing by themselves in the ocean. And um, in the free state of Florida. Right, right. Just <laughs> like, who made that up? And you're in you Florida, know? just so people know, right? So yeah, oh, I fled home to my beloved home state. I was yeah. born and raised in South Florida, but I was gone for 30 years, half the time in Manhattan when I was working for Citigroup. And then I bought a little farm in Virginia and was there for the next 15 years. And I just saw Northam's response and said, I'm going home <laughs> because I was also yeah. seeing DeSantis's response. Yeah. Fair know? enough. And, yeah. Right. Right. So and I that's def- pretty amazing. I just, uh, I, I hadn't quite realized the extent of the, of the freedom. Cause I was in California <laughs> during that whole time. I've just recently moved to Iowa, but I mean, I was dealing with, with the California response, but there were like school was happening in Florida, no masks in schools. You were describing the listening to NPR. And I thought that was outrageous uh, listening to NPR where the messaging was, oh, my gosh, you know, everybody's locked down. Nobody, you know, no, everybody needs to keep the masks on in school. And you're sitting there in Florida just going, well, there's not there's never been masks in school and everybody's fine. So what's the big deal? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to say um so when we get into state health laws, which ultimately were what governed what, what reigned supreme in mm. 
our national response to COVID-19. It's interesting because some states are governed by one set of statutes and others are governed by county or by region within that state. So within the state of Florida, we had Dayton, Palm Beach and Broward, which is where I was born and raised, um, implementing mask laws successfully. And then we had some arguments with DeSantis trying to remove them and remove funding and, and all of that. But um, and so I chose to come home to North Florida, which is completely free and open. And it okay. just I, there hasn't been a, I, I would say, you know, like when Omicron surged, maybe 10 percent of the population put on, on masks. Right. So so completely free. Our kids have been in school for the full two years mask free. But yet in Alachua, one county over, which is where University of Florida is, they were masked. Huh. So and and now it wasn't like that in all states. So so you've got this plethora going on. But we're gonna okay. start with what governed us in the United States um, with respect to COVID law laws related to uh, handling COVID nineteen, and that was a kind of a deep dive, and then and illuminating, mm-hmm. and then we're gonna get into what governed the world, like what is this body of international law, right? And is it mind? I'm actually really interested in in your uh, history in international finance because I do, as you mentioned, with the IMF uh, and basically trying to bribe Belarus into right. into conformity. I think that that the IMF. I did an interview. If you're familiar with uh, John Perkins, the Confessions of an him. Economic Hitman. Yeah, years Absolutely. ago. Years ago, I interviewed him, and it was just the light bulb went off that this is how. Really, they they control financially. Uh, this is how they can kind of move mountains internationally. Um, so we'll compare and contrast that with this idea, the legal idea and the treaties like the World Health Organization treaty uh, that we're, we're about to get into here. Um, so just different forms of coercion on that international level, trying to get countries to conform. So that's exactly where my review of the international health regulations has led me to conclude that it's all uh, the release of money, like the declaration of the international pandemic thing is all about releasing the money um, and, and where it goes and to whom it goes. So, but let's, that's, that's going to be, so when we messaged yesterday, I was like, Oh my God, that's what I found yesterday. So great. Let's go cover my other two pieces. And then we're going to get into that. And that I'm going to, just tell you, having lit onto that yesterday, as this is the reason for these amendments, it has nothing to do with like the criticism that the uh, the World Health Organization was slow to respond to China and their two month delay of declaring the international you know pandemic. Mm-hmm. We didn't care. You saw Donald Trump declare a moratorium on flights from China before the WHO even declared a public health emergency, right? Right. So, so, so let's lead into these conclusions. Okay. And, and so let's look at what governed, we've already pretty much covered what governed the United States, but let's d- d- dive a little deeper into specifics, which were the 10th Amendment to the Constitution, yeah. which gives all states powers that haven't been given by the federal, to the federal government, which includes health. So basically... Uh, And let me also add the Commerce Clause uh, to the Constitution. So what you saw were states reigning supreme. That's why you saw this huge variation in responses, right? Um, 
And I'm, I'm not even going to weave in my ideological divide, <laughs> except to say that red states seem to be a lot freer in general. Sure. And states seem to be a lot more lockdown mask, you know. Let's, uh, let's just go ahead and discuss this concept of federalism, because this is the overarching legal idea that you can have, um, you know, national law, but then like you say, the 10th Amendment uh, says anything not specifically mentioned in the Constitution is a state's rights. And then even in some states, as you already described, uh, these kinds of health decisions will be then further federalized down onto the county level. Um, so there's just a kind of a, a ladder of sovereignty here yeah, where, yeah, exactly. you know, the city has certain powers and then the county and then the state governments and then the national governments and then the international bodies, and, and it's all legally really spelled out uh, what these powers are and exactly what these entities can do. So let's take the health laws um, and drill down into this concept of federalism. So the history of our country um, as the United States is, is immigrants coming over in ships, right? And so wherever those ships landed, that state dealt with quarantine. And, um, you know, keeping ships offshore for 10 days or 40 days or whatever it was. And over time, the, um, that process became federalized. Okay. So that's sort of the history. And, and the entity that eventually became the CDC was responsible for federalizing where all of these ships were landing, but only pertaining to quarantine. Right. And, um, then the Commerce Clause also gave that federal, uh, what became the CDC, the power to uh, regulate health in inter interstate commerce. So that's the evolution. Now, now that was formalized. Um, let me refer to my notes because oh, everything is just so legal and I want to mm -hmm. make sure I read them right. So the Federal Public Health Service Act of 1944 is what formalized what was loosely organized in that the states were going to handle the health issues within their own states. But this process that became federalized over time where the states just said, please, one organization deal with it, that became the CDC, then had jurisdiction over ports of entry, ports of entry and interstate commerce. Okay. Um, so this Federal Public Health Service Act gave the power to, let me just follow through here, um, the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services to lead federal public health and medical responses to public health emergencies. That got delegated. They delegated that to the CDC. Okay. okay? So, so just, to, uh, just to add, like, that's why at least now, I think the mask mandates were done by executive order. That's a whole other can of worms, but it was justified in terms of this interstate commerce clause that's that, why, that the feds could do this. That's why that federal executive order could only apply to ports of entry, like airports and buses, interstate commerce, right? Okay. And that's why the mask mandate and the vaccine mandate could only coming from the federal government could only apply to federal employees. Right. So. You are exactly right. That's right. And so, yeah, so in the list of other laws that governed us is certainly the executive order. 
Do right? you happen to know why, uh, what the argument was for that Florida judge that overturned the mass mandates just recently? Um, yeah. And I pulled Leslie's right up on it and it, it's, it's just, I've got it over here. Mm -hmm. So can let's. Sure. Yeah. It's over there. <laughs> right. It was definitely part of, okay, let me see what I wrote here. Um, yeah. This was recently declared unlawful and vacated entirely by a federal judge in Florida, that Biden's executive order. And again, the write-up is in my pile. Okay. So yeah, yeah, fair enough. I was just wondering if it was had something to do with the Commerce Clause, or if it was just about that it was an executive order and that the president didn't have the the ability to do it. But oh, do you want me to look through my file real quick? We can. We'll, we'll uh, let's wait on that. We'll figure that yeah. out. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. I've got so many pieces of paper. Fair enough. So many legal opinions and things I've delved through that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, so, but you're right. So, um, executive order is another one of the laws that, that guided us. And then uh, finally ending with all 50 state, um, state statute, uh, health statutes. So, yeah. All right. Sounds good. Um, so where were we going? We were going with, um, why the fact this is these are the limitations that the federal government has in terms of all of this COVID stuff, and this is the reason why so many the states could have so many different um, various ways of approaching uh, how they dealt with COVID. Correct. Right. It's a, it's a constitutional issue. Right, and and so remain vigilant on the state level because remember that little uh, blurb in my write up talking about my read of our Florida House statutes. Mm -hmm verbatim says, if there is no practical method to isolate or quarantine the individual, the state health officer may use any means necessary to treat the individual. That's in my Florida statutes. And we've right. been the most open and free state. Yeah, that's in it. That's interesting because basically only because DeSantis didn't decide to pull the trigger, but in the law, even in Florida and probably in in almost every other state, if we were honest and we really looked into it, um, right. that they give themselves a lot of leverage in terms of quote unquote health emergencies and what they can do. Right. So. Right. Right. So, so vigilance and, and yeah. Florida is calling for an update in 2022 due in June of 2022 to these statutes. And, you know, I'm going to make my voice heard because DeSantis has been awesome, according to my ideology, but what about his right. successor if that clause remains in our health statutes? I mean, you know, you're going to have like a Whitmer or something declaring, you know, a moratorium on the sale of garden seeds, you know? <laughs> well, that's what's been so interesting to me about this whole thing is that um, you find these, I mean, you know, like I said, I was living in California and um, the state of emergencies just allow these people to do almost whatever they want. And they've been, it's like there's been this mission creep. And I think that's the concern about what the World Health Organization is trying to do now. Not that they're, you know, not that the United States is necessarily legally bound by these international treaties in a large part, well, because it has its own sovereignty and we have via the constitution, this idea of federalism, but there's this mission creep that, that they kind of sneak in over and over again, over time where it starts as, well, if there's a state of emergency, you know, we're going to need to have that kind of power. And you don't even realize how much power they have until 
there's an excuse to pull the trigger on these things. And the next thing you know, you're living in a completely authoritarian, totalitarian state like California, and you have no control. I mean, the democracy, it was just amazing to me. I'm living in California. They shut down our democracy in California and nobody lifted a finger. Nobody thought twice about it. <laughs> I, it's scary. It's yeah. scary. And, and now we're talking about that ideological divide that it is mission creep. And it's creeping into, you know, certainly our federal government. I mean, we're seeing this ideology like running rampant now, yeah. but you also see it in the who now let, this is like the perfect segue into talking about the international health regulations Let's and do it. The, the amendments to the international health regulations. So, um, <clears throat> pardon me. Florida pollen. <laughs> yep. Um, so I, so part two of my article um, or my write-up on what what laws governed us during COVID-19 is the legal authority of the World Health Organization. But before we um, delve into this particular treaty, let's just take a quick look at what a treaty is. Um, A treaty is international law and a treaty is an agreement between a country and another country or a country and a multi multilateral institution like the WHO or the United Nations, um, multiple countries agreeing, um, and they are their law and they follow a process that a clearly delineated process known as the uh, Vienna convention, Mm -hmm. which is a treaty that we've all signed and agreed to build a treaty um, according to these rules. So the Vienna Convention clearly delineates the process of drafting the language of a treaty. And now we're going to go to that two-thirds, which I believe is a misinterpretation, the the claim that two-thirds voting are going to bind everyone. Uh That's two-thirds of the World Health Organization have to vote to change the international health regulations. So, so what's happening in Geneva, May 22nd through the 28th, is the World Health Assembly is coming together okay. to review 30 different items. And you can go to the website and see the 30 different items that they're reviewing. And the amendments to this international health regulations are one of them. But what they're meeting for is to vote on the adoption of the language of the amendments, which if there's no objection is a simple majority. And if there is objection, it requires two thirds of the vote of the assembly. And I think it's a simple misinterpretation. It's like a linguistic misinterpretation that this assembly is meeting, and if two-thirds vote, it binds every state, which is just not true. They're mm-hmm. voting on the language that is then going to be presented to member states to accept, reject, or accept with reservation. So, okay, yes, so that 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 clears up one point, right? That it, it, I believe it's a, a simple mistake. Um, if, so if no one objects to the language, it would only take a majority of the World Health majority, Assembly right, to right. pass it. And if a member state objects, then it will take a two thirds majority. That's correct. OK, that's correct. So um, let's have a look at the international health regulations as it stands right now. Right. 
Um, we the so 194 member countries, members of the World Health Organization, um, signed this document in 2005 to be effective 24 months later in 2007. Okay, now let's take a look at first of all we're we're um, drafting language and the Vienna Convention states very specifically who's qualified to draft the language of a treaty, right? Um, and then it get, the language of the treaty gets voted on and then the treaty gets presented to states, member states for acceptance, rejection or acceptance with reservation. And what that means is that no third country or consortium of countries can bind a state to an international treaty other than the state itself. Right. And so what governs that process is our U.S. State Department who ferries that treaty through the acceptance process, which now there are varying ways that treaties can be adopted by nations. And one of them is to be approved by the president and then sent to the Senate for a two-thirds vote. Mm -hmm. Now, there's another form called the executive agreement that can simply be signed by the president. Okay, that's interesting to me because I had that question for you. You had mentioned in your article that um, in 2005, it was just signed by the president. But it was my understanding that the Constitution is explicit about the two thirds majority in the Senate to, to be passed for treaty ratification. So is this some kind of legalese this executive agreement to get around so the Senate? That's what's so interesting, because actually James had brought this to my attention, uh -huh. that he believed that it was an executive agreement signed only by the president, but only because neither one of us could find, we looked back in the, the Senate, um, you know, what did the Senate do in the year 2005? I couldn't find reference to anything concerning a treaty in their 2005 activity. So absence, does absence mean it didn't happen? Like, why isn't this addressed anywhere? Yeah. So this, is some, this is sort of an open issue right now. Right. It, but it's, the Vienna Convention state that they hold the weight of a treaty, even if only signed by the president. Sure. It's so fascinating to me. I mean, even with the concept of executive order, now that's not in the constitution either, I know. but presidents just sort of decided, well, this is a lot easier than having to get Congress to vote on it. So I guess, and it's just Let's becoming more and more popular. I think Reagan did three of them and now uh, Biden's already done 15 or something. Obama did 35. I mean, they've just become exponential That's correct. Uh, with each administration. And these are extra judicial that, that you know these are extra constitutional just something somebody made up one day some president said well why don't we just make an executive order and then we don't have to have that. yeah why have bypass democracy yeah exactly <laughs> I mean, these are the kinds of things that people really need to be aware of because it's this it's these these kinds of loopholes and shenanigans that get pulled that exactly what you just said they bypass democracy right. just like the emergency order even these emergency orders in in California or in these states where oh you just the governor can call a state of emergency and then you can bypass you know the democracy no need for that anymore you know <laughs> so we're entering <laughs> into be very really careful yeah dangerous times right where right. It just, it seems like the totalitarian tiptoe yeah. is now a stampede. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's the concern. And we hopefully we can push back against this because if you follow the Constitution and if you follow the idea of federalism, the World Health Organization can't get away with this. But if they they are trying to make it to where, you know, hey, there's an outbreak of a weird flu in Bolivia. We're just going to shut them down. Boom. You know, it it can be arbitrary. We'll call a state of emergency and then. Uh, the World Health Organization's in charge now, you know? <laughs> well, you know, that is, I'm finding that to be not true. Yeah. They're not really in charge. What they do in these declarations of international pandemics is release the flow of funds that just go everywhere. Okay. So I want to take us back to before they declared the pandemic, Donald Trump shut down flights from China, right? So he didn't care what the who did or didn't do. Then who said, don't wear a mask. And our state governors still implemented masking. And here's another interesting thing. So, so, well, the third thing is they recommended that two tests be used to test for COVID. One we know is not fit for purpose whatsoever. Right. Mm -hmm. And the world ran with their recommendations. So, so we have, so, so the point I'm making is that we have the ability to adopt what they want us to, or say we should and reject what we want to, and we'll get into why that is right. But, but I want to, um, I guess before we go on the other thing that's worth mentioning is that it was actually, because I didn't realize this either, but the Biden administration is the one that's put forth to the world health organizations, these amendment changes, so this is coming from the U.S. government. This is what the Biden administration wants to see. It, they are petitioning the World Health Organization to to give them this this uh, this extra these extra powers potentially. That is uh, so important. And the punchline is is I'm just going to skip to what I came to yesterday, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be researching for the entire week um, to drill down into the details. Um, It is in the service to what we've already heard Klaus Schwab say with the Great Reset. And I'm going to point out the particulars of that as we dig more deeply into the international health regulations and their amendments. But it's so important. That's why I'm like, I'm scratching my head saying, why is the U.S. doing this? If it's going to seed our sovereignty and it's going to usurp our constitution and all the rest of this stuff. Well, there's an answer and we're going to get to that. Okay? Okay, great. So, um, so what are these international health regulations that we signed in 2005? It is a, a treaty uh, to uh, develop for each country that signed it. We are now mandated with developing surveillance capabilities internally to detect health outbreaks. We agree to report, develop a reporting structure directly to the World Health Organization that alerts them to these potential, um, is it going to be an international concern or whatnot, right? Or that's, that's the phrase, just to let people know too, public health emergency of international concern. And that's when, if, if the, the signal goes on, then the World Health Organization, according to these potential amendments, can, can go in and that triggers all of these potential powers. That's right, but not not powers, more of a flow of funds, because we're going to get into a concept known as reservations and understandings that the U.S. 
typically includes in their signing of international treaties. And that's exactly how we've insulated ourselves from um, a takeover by the World Health Organization. So anyway, so, so what this treaty, we've agreed to obligate ourselves in the signing of this treaty to develop this surveillance capacity internally, huge expenditure of funds, uh, a notification process to the WHO of any potential emergency issue within our borders. Um, there's another requirement to notify them of anything we hear might be happening in another country. Hmm. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. Yeah, interesting. That goes to the amendments and reservations and understandings. And then it's to, to develop the third obligation that we agreed to undertake when we signed this treaty was to develop an a, a, a infrastructure within our country to handle a, a pandemic. Okay. Huge, huge commitment. Okay. And we read the legal opinions about signing treaties and obligations contained therein. Um, you see the word sovereignty. This is how we cede our sovereignty in the signing of the treaty because we agree to undertake something for the global for the global benefit, right? We, we agree that we are going to spend these funds to, to coordinate a global response that could have dire consequences. And you know what? In a good world, that's a noble undertaking, right? right? And in this weird world that we find ourselves in, having just experienced two years of nightmare, you gotta, you gotta be on guard, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, what's always so strange is that they find these loopholes and they make them sound like these great necessary noble excuses related to, to, to seed power though, to take and to take power uh, from otherwise sovereign states. So let's talk about reservations and understandings. So when a country is presented with the text of a treaty that's already gone through either their simple majority approval of whatever body was tasked with doing that as specified by the, the Vienna Conventions. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we, we are presented with this text that's been approved by either a simple majority or two thirds. Um, and then it is shepherded through the approval process, whatever that looks like. We can accept the treaty, we can reject the treaty, or we can accept it with reservations and understandings. So the reservation we make in the signing, the United States makes in the signing of almost every treaty we become party to is that of federalism. And what that reservation says that is that we commit to doing whatever this treaty is asking of us. However, we will never do anything outside of our own federal and state laws. That's why there is no global law that we've ceded authority to because we've contained that reservation, we've put that reservation into the signing of this treaty and yeah. most others. Yeah. Okay. So it's basically a way of saying that, I mean, the federal government can't agree to go against the constitution and the constitution gives states rights. So the federal government can't tell the states what, what to do when it comes to a lot of these issues. This ratchets it up another level. This prevents an entity such as the WHO from being able to, to make a requirement that we violate our own federal and state laws. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So that's how come nothing the who can say or make us do. We, we won't do it. We're telling the world that we won't do it if it violates one of our state or federal laws, right. which is its own mixed bag. Because if you dig into the federal register and look up the, um, hold on, I'm going to refer back to, so I get it right. Um, wrong document over here. Uh, the Federal Public Health Service Act of 1944 um, is published in the Federal Register as, long, as well as amendments and updates and whatnot, right? So I'm just going to take one example of where this works against us. So the um, World Health Organization uh, laws say they have a prohibition against bodily cavity invasion of a medical instrument. That means inserting a temperature probe into your ear or a swab up your nose. But our federal regulations say it's not invasive to go into a body cavity for a medical examination. Hmm. So, so you, you have this, like, so it may not be a good thing in that instance to be subject to our laws over their laws, you sure. know? Yeah. Well, so, it's one of the things that I've always found... <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting about these documents because they often they write these laws in such a way that they can be interpreted uh, and people, you know, people are people and they can interpret them to give themselves a, a lot of power, you know, in a lot of instances, unless you have, I mean, unfortunately, most of the time people are, are corrupted and they're seeking power. I mean, occasionally you have good people that are really trying to write these documents uh, that, that limit, I mean, the constitution was really trying to limit the power that people could have over other people. Um, but over, you know, 200 years, 230 years or so now, uh, at people, many, many people have found many loopholes to get around that and figure out, you know, how to get more and more power uh, out of this document, even no matter how explicitly you write it, it's just always kind of boils down to people's interpretations. And it's very frustrating. I mean, it's just important that we have good leadership, really, like good, really good people that are in leadership who care uh, about protecting people's civil liberties, because, and unfortunately, that's very rarely the case. <laughs> and becoming worse. Yeah. And becoming worse after this whole, you know, so we saw a large, a frightening portion of the population lay down and take total lockdown, school closures, masking, you know, yeah. vaccinations of an experimental gene therapy, you know, that was rushed through. But we're going to get to this, this whole unleashing of funds and the declaration of a public health emergency and all of that. So, so let me just see if I have made sort of the points I wanted to. Okay. So reservation. So, so that federalism reservation is how we prevent any, anything coming from another and any entity outside of ourselves mm -hmm. from being legally binding. Okay. And so there was this reservation on the initial uh, World Health Organization International Health Regulations in 2005. That's right. If they pass these amendments, um, would there be potentially there would be another reservation? Would would the would the Congress or I mean probably President Biden, since he was the one that that 
that put forth these amendments probably is okay with them. So he may just sign uh, another executive agreement. So no, actually, treaty law says that the reservations and understandings that were in effect upon the signing of the treaty are in effect with respect to the amendments. Okay. Yes. So is is uh, is there going to have to be a new with the amendments? Is there going to have to be a new ratification process, or are the amendments are going to change and all the member states are still going to be part of it because they've already joined? So no. So every single state that's a signatory to the current IHR, which are 194 member states plus two non-member states, are individually going to have to either approve, reject, or approve with reservations. But the reservations that are already in the document apply to the amendments. Right. Okay. We have the ability to make new ones with respect to the amendments, but we've already got our bases covered by saying- No, you don't take over our constitution. No, we don't cede our sovereignty other than through agreement to take on these obligations that we signed up to do. Yeah. Right. So now let's get to the amendments because this is what this whole, this is what started this whole hullabaloo. Right. So I'm looking at, okay, so we've already made sure that we don't cede sovereignty. Right through making that reservation upon signing that treaty in 2005. Um, and um, so then I said, so why, why, what, what's the purpose of these amendments? Now, one of the, when you, when you read through the literature and the, the uh, scholarly criticism and the, the legal criticism of the who's response to COVID-19, the biggest criticism was their lack of, response in declaring that public health emergency because of dickering back and forth with China, like China not giving them information, which is part of the um, treaty, which specifies, you know, consultation with a country and agreement with a country that there is a public emergency of, you know, international global health emergency, right? So that delayed the declaration by two months. Again, we didn't care because we already declared. So, so we, nobody was legally bound. Um, You know, we could do our own thing, the United States and other countries, as we saw like Sweden and Belarus. So I'm imagining without looking at their internal laws that they expressed a similar reservation in, ado- in adopting the treaties, right? Sure. Um, so, so. And so the, the only event- thing that really wasn't happening, we weren't getting certain funding that we may have gotten from the World Health Organization had they, had they declared the pandemic earlier and been promoting right. all of this. Okay. Right, right. Um, but I'm not really clear now. I did. So, so of course, you know, I have a background in finance. And so I just began to delve into the flow of funds yesterday. Mm -hmm. And it hit upon me that they're not, what they're concerned over is that declaration to release the flow of funds, right. And to channel it to their cronies and to, (laughs) to, and, and literally, and to get now I, I pulled um, some legal scholars opinions on the amendments, the proposed amendments and on the functioning of the world health organization during COVID-19 and remembering my international background and in, in lesser developed countries, you can see how like they're now proposing to bring in the IMF 
to to force these countries, but they also want it. So it's not really forced. They want to save lives, uh, the the lives of their people, right? Mm -hmm. But then they have all these ties that bind, that that are sneaky and insidious. Like we're seeing, um, you know, when you talk about like central bank digital currencies and, and how, you know, oops, you know, you're overweight, uh, and social credit scores and stuff like that. Well, no pizza for you at the supermarket this week. Right. So it's sort of like these punishments that that are contained in these IMF loans, right? So, but let let's drill down into some of the particulars because I want to bring out what led me to like the light bulb going off and saying, this is about the money. And mm-hmm. it's also about the World Economic Forum's agenda of tying COVID to, you know, the Green New Deal and and climate change and, okay. and all of that. Right. So, so let me um, take it to the right place. Understandings. Yeah. So again, in drawing on those two international law professors' um, commentaries and seeing how it's sort of moral moral suasion to 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 dangle this amount of money in front of a country a lesser developed country that needs it so badly they're compelled to take it right so so let me go and yes to talk about where financial and coercive elements are contained in these amendments um, so article 5 is the topic of surveillance remembering in the original treaty, we've agreed to develop this internal internal surveillance capability to be able to quickly react to any possibility that a health emergency could spread not only wider within our own country, but internationally, right? So um, a new, uh, contained in the amendment, so not in the current treaty we're signatory to, but one of these proposed amendments is calling for a periodic review of state's capacity to detect, assess, notify, and report events um, so that the WHO can assist in the mobilization of financial resources. So it's right there in the open. It wasn't there before, it's there now. Um, This article under surveillance is now including um, assessing national and regional not only global risks, but national and regional. So that's more expenditure of funds through the dangling of IMF loans in countries that don't have the money to increase their surveillance, right? Okay. Um, Article six notification. Now this is where it gets really interesting. So concern, now notification um, is on two different levels. Notification is notification to the who that you're having a problem in your own country that because that could become of of international concern but it also is you've heard that another country is having a problem so you're going to report that to the world health organization right Mm -hmm. and then the world health organization is going to um, seek the assistance of other organizations' competencies who may be able to lend more information to the event. Now, in the original treaty, that only included the Atomic Energy Agency, which makes perfect sense if you think about it, right? Because if a health, if if a nuke went off or a nuke plant started melting down or or anything along those lines, we would want to have their expertise right. in assisting 
with a global health event, right? Interesting. So, so back in 2005, they were kind of pushing it as a, as a, a radiation issue or an atomic, potentially an atomic accident or something like that. And now, of course, they've got the, the whole pandemic thing has taken well, Let off. me tell you who they've added. Let me tell you who they've added as these entities that they're going to consult with, right? It, it, they've added food and agriculture organizations. Hmm. They've added the World Organization for Animal Health, and they've added the UN Environmental Program. Well, doesn't that just tie in with, you know, cow farts are global warming, so you can't eat right. meat anymore? Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> right. Uh, okay, and and what about like, you know, agricultural practices? Like, um, I mean, I'm an organic farmer. So I am I am I am fully aware of the health risks involved in conventional agriculture, the the Monsanto GMO seeds and the application of chemicals and all of that. But what are you what are you talking about bringing in the food and agricultural program? Like like we know that you want Billy's bug burgers, Bill Gates bug burgers drone dropped on everyone, and that's going to be their diet so that we don't expend fuel or right. oil. In conventional agriculture, so it, it, it's like it, mission creep, right? Yeah, here. it definitely sounds like a, another kind of power play there, right? Where now they can, instead of just being about uh, you know radiation, nuclear radiation issues, or even about the pandemic, maybe the next thing is going to be some kind of global warming, climate crisis. And suddenly this can now activate uh, all this World Health Organization funding and involvement as well. And hmm, that's and, interesting. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. And then I guess the punchline is in that addition of those other agencies I mentioned, it says, or other relevant entities. Right. <laughs> Which is that, again, that massive loophole that means oh, also anybody else we feel like, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just shocking, right? Yeah. Mission creep on steroids. So, um, so it, it, and then that Indian professor of international law that I mentioned, I was referencing, he actually was commenting on these proposed amendments back in December, which is many months before they were provided to the WHO from Lois Pace, our, the designated person who presented to them to the WHO. Um, so, so there were drafts circulating prior to that January 22nd submission date. And this is a professor I found who was commenting on those draft amendments. Okay. I haven't figured out, I have not been able to figure out how and the mechanism or whatever, but he was commenting on them back in December. And he speculates that other relevant entities can include stakeholders ranging from private persons, loose associations to international non-state actors. It can include standard setting organizations that force you to comply with whatever they are going, they're going to set the standards and that's how you, what you have to implement. Right. Or you're so hungry for cash that you have to accept them because you don't have a choice. Right. Um, credit rated agent, credit rating agencies. And this becomes important. Like, okay, well now I need your IMF loan, but you've downgraded me. So now I have to pay even more. Right. So this is just this whole morass of tying all of these different entities in, right? Yeah, for sure. 
Um, so, so let's see. And uh, potential development donors and financiers, research organizations, academic and institutes, production and manufacturing companies of healthcare products. So he's speculating on the gamut of what could be these other relevant entities. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I imagine, and we're talking about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or any of these other Rockefeller Foundation or any of these NGOs as well. Whoever so. they want it to be, whoever yeah. they want it to be, remembering that when the WHO reviewed COVID tests, recommended to, and the world adopted them. Like, and, and then you just wonder, well, how'd they get them all so fast, you know? Right. Like, <laughs> And and where'd that plexiglass come from? And those stickers that appeared in every freaking store that you, you're six feet apart. Like that was like the same month the pandemic was declared, right? Oh my goodness. So I know. Um, so let's see. Oh, and another huge piece, Article Six. We are still on notification. So we're talking about the flow of information going from states to the WHO. And back back again um, with these recommendations and bringing in these other relevant entities. So the, the U.S. in their amendments is specifying that one thing that they want the country of origin, the country that this health emergency is happening in, is to provide the WHO with genetic sequencing data. Uh -huh. Now, let's take a look at what happened in the development of the COVID-19 vaccination, right? So... What, what was given from China was this genetic sequence of this thing that came from Wuhan, either from a wet market or from a release from the bio lab there, right? So China provided the genetic sequencing, which was then patented, patented for the development of these vaccines, right? So, so coming from an Indian professor in a lesser developed country, he's saying, wait, there's this benefit sharing that we're not going to be part of based upon what we've already seen you do during COVID-19, right? Hmm. If you're requiring us to turn over this genetic information in order to patent a product that you're going to make billions from. Right. So it's another, you know, it's the flow of funds. Yeah. And, and pushing and clearly pushing for these uh, more and more of this mRNA vaccination technology as well. I mean, this is they're going to be starting to be their solution to everything. If you are listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. For access to the full feature length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKenty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to the Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. It's the people that are attracted to ideologies in general. Like, I think that's what we really need to start promoting is you've got to stop having an ideology. Like, don't have an ideology. Look at every issue as its own thing. Learn how to think for yourself and make your own choices about individual issues. And don't, you know, 
because it's once you get sucked into this ideology concept, it can be on the left or on the right. I mean, you know, just sometimes I think the propaganda targets, you know, they'll target the left, they'll target the right, different times, different places, different issues. And if you're ideologically inclined and you identify as a member of this group of ideologues, then you're easily manipulated. And that's that's what we've got to get across to people and get over this. I, you know, and the other thing I want to bring into this talk about ideology or it, the divide, the divide, which I'm referring to is, uh, is between freedom and totalitarianism. Yeah. And, um, I, it's just, so, so some of the elements I'm seeing too are like psychological warfare keying into your CIA, um, meme, meme thing, but it seems like bigger than that because it's it's kind of trauma-based right because it's like fear constantly regaling people with red and blue flashing screens and death counts and you know then it turned into case counts which was completely meaningless without uh corresponding hospitalization and symptoms and death like it was just a fake word and a fake right yeah but um so i'm seeing um also like elements of, you know, like projection, like, like when you're literally saying that someone else is doing what you're doing, like, for example, you're so hate filled and you're going to kill me. And then you turn around and say, you know, I actually, you're the one that's so hate filled because you're telling half the population to die who didn't take a vaccine or whatever proportion of the population, anyone that didn't take a vaccine. Right. Yeah. So, so that is is a whole level of psychological manipulation. And what I want to know is, can it be undone? Because it there's, to me, there's this inexorable march toward totalitarianism, like this whole, you know, drowning out the voices of people asking questions and bringing up scientific research that contradicts the dominant narrative. Yeah. You know, being kicked off social media and everything without... But there doesn't seem to be any like viewing of them as humans with valid viewpoints, even though they might differ from yours. Let's can we come? Can we bring that back, or is it so I far? Don't, I don't know. It is an interesting question. I mean, um, the whole thing has become extremely psychological now. Right. I mean, I used to go around around circles trying to show people those peer-reviewed studies that disagreed with the dominant narrative and, the, and they couldn't look at them and they wouldn't look at them. And, but I was like, you know, I think logic and reason can, can convince people to change. Right. And now it really is like the cognitive dissonance and the confirmation bias is so strong in these people um, mm. that are so, you know, ideologically uh, self-identified that um, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, uh, I, I've started to think of it a lot like a cult indoctrination. Very much so. And when you have a member of your family that's been in a cult, you know, you know how difficult it is to, to get people out of it and then to have them heal back into and individuate, you know, back into a place where they have a, a sense of self-identity again. It's a, it's a long process. And so I don't know, it's challenging. Now, we're, we're facing some challenging times here. <laughs> so in, on on almost every level yeah. imaginable, except here on my farm <laughs> yep. with my critters. But, nice. but that, well, that you got that. Me, it keeps me grounded. It really keeps me sane. But yeah. 
you know, so it just seems like this inexorable march toward this World Economic Forum agenda. Yeah. And um, I'm not going along with that. I'm it's so yep. so. I, it lots more to talk about. Like, is it going to be like a parallel type of set of institutions and society? Yeah. Because you don't get the freedom lovers to join the totalitarians voluntarily. That's where I think I've been going. I mean, I haven't stopped believing that, you know, we could maybe organize, there could be a political movement that could put a stop to this, but more and more, it seems like having a parallel, a parallel economy, you know, and just leaving, giving, setting up, you know, systems uh, where people can leave, you know, the, what I've been calling it the corporate government complex, you know, this public private, these public private enterprises that mm. have been manufacturing, you know, reality basically um, and imposing these narratives on everybody and just leave it, like leave it. Let's educate ourselves in our own schools. You know, let's have our own news. <laughs> let's get, let's uh, grow our own food, you know, and just not participate anymore because, uh, more and more, you know, clearly they're going to use that leverage. If we can't take care of ourselves, they're going to use that leverage to get us into the central bank digital currencies and the social credit systems. And then we'll be trapped, you know, there'd be no way out. So, and, you know, and even if you can take care of yourself, like I can pretty much, I mean, I fed myself from my farm in Virginia for over a decade. Yeah, that's awesome. Made an income doing it too, right? Um, I haven't developed that capacity here in Florida. I'm in, I'm in like the same longitude as the Sahara Desert, and yeah. I'm literally on sand. So oh, that wow. presents its own set, but of, of of growing challenges. That I'm two years into it now, second spring. Now I'm doing great, but you cool. know, people who don't know how to garden or to can to preserve for the seasons, you know, where you have winter and stuff like that. Yeah there it it doesn't happen overnight um but what you know we're talking about um self-sufficiency or providing for yourself and and then the insurance companies in florida come in to inspect your roof is part of you know however frequently you get inspected for your homeowner's insurance or your you know um uh for your mortgage and then they'll say you only have you have to replace your roof now hmm. because where that's our determination because of hurricane preparedness and whatever. And if you don't, we'll cancel your insurance. Well, there are lots of people who don't have $12,000 or $40,000 lying around to do that right now. You know, so, so, and, and property taxes, my property taxes. Right. It's a challenge. I, I know. This stuff is everywhere. Well, Susan, let's, uh, let's wrap it up. We can actually talk a little bit more after, but um, I just want to kind of conclude the podcast here. And um, if you have, I, I know, I think, I, I hope maybe you, you consider starting your own Substack or your own blog or something so you can get some of this information and in, into a format where uh, I could send people to to find out the stuff that you've been working on. But if you have any um, any place that you want, any final words or any place that you want, uh, you think that people could go to look into this subject so that they could learn more than, than let them know now. Yeah, so Substack next, and I do okay. have somebody very interested in in um, receiving my series. That I have been so bogged down in fact checking, and then some th something else comes up that 
you know, it's right. been delayed. But the minute that happens, I'm just going to go ahead and submit the first two because it's no longer it's the domestic laws and international laws. And now it's going to be follow the money is, yeah. is three. And then ideology four. I'm going to go ahead with the first two. You'll be the first to know. Great. You'll get a link. And, you know, when they get published and then definitely Substack too. Yeah. So. Yeah. Sounds good. I've been doing Substack and I actually really like it. It, 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 uh, it covers a lot of bases. You can use it as a newsletter, just to get in touch with people, people sign right. up and you have, but you can also, then you can publish any, you know, any written work that you have, or even I, I published um, audio versions of the podcast on there. Mm -hmm. um, and get them out to everybody on the, on the newsletter. So yeah, I'd recommend it. So you can get this information. And I actually, I really think you're onto something. I do think that we get so, uh, sidetracked by this sovereignty issue. And the fact is they don't care about the sovereignty issue. Like they want us to be sidetracked on that because it's where you got to follow the money to figure out what they're really up to. And I think what you're going to uncover when you start opening this can of worms a little bit, a little bit wider is going to, is going to probably blow people's minds. Um, I bet there are many, many stories like that Remdesivir story where you just find these corporations, I mean, handed billions of dollars with, with zero liability and zero risk, zero financial risk up front. Um, these, these sweet, sweetheart deals that they're getting from these organizations like the World Health Organization that are just plugging corporations with governments together and billions of dollars are getting passed back and forth. And, and the people that are getting screwed are the poor countries, the little guys, you know, um, where these corporations are able to roll over them, uh, and continue to extract resources and labor out of these people. Right. So Pfizer owns report. Yeah. Right. There you go. How hungry are you? Yeah. Right. It's all yeah. tied in. You'll, yeah. you'll own nothing and be happy. All right. Cool, Susan. And I'll let people know they've been listening to The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKinty. Uh, you can uh, join the conversation on Facebook by um, just friending me, Doug McKinty, on Facebook. I'm also at D. McKinty on Twitter. And my website is www.theshiftnow.com, where you can find uh, all the episodes up. Sign up for the newsletter there or subscribe for the full-length versions of the episodes. Uh, and I'm also now on Substack at uh, The Populous Papers. Uh, www.thepopulouspapers.substack.com where I've been dabbling in writing a, a, my own political philosophy here and putting my own angle on things and hoping that we can break down actually this ideological divide and, and start um, developing a, a more unified movement against just the the corruption. I mean, I think there's no other way to say it, but we're just starting to really, I think at least more and more people are becoming aware that the level of corruption we're dealing with is just completely endemic. Uh, and unless we do something about it, these people are just going to keep rolling over us. So thanks for your research, Susan. Really appreciate it. And thanks for coming on the show, letting people Thank know you what you're that. finding out. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Have a good one. You too. Take care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Susan Guest. She actually got in touch with me. She reached out to me because she just sort of desperately wanted somebody to talk to about uh, her disagreements with the prevailing notion that these, this, uh, the pandemic treaty <clears throat> and these amendments to the international health regulations were really this, this super attack on national sovereignty because, uh, as you just heard, her interpretation of the treaty of the Vienna Convention, uh, how treaties are read, and then understanding the concept of these reservations 
um, and the federalism reservation, specifically in the United States here, uh, stipulates that the World Health Organization really can't just overstep national bounds. Um, they can provide recommendations, but they can't. I mean, how are they going to, you know, national governments have militaries. Uh, how are they going to tell somebody what to do if they don't want to do it? They're not going to do it. They can, what, sue them in, in uh, international criminal court? Uh, and these treaties aren't really that binding. And I, uh, it was interesting because I'd had this feeling when I first heard about this issue as it came up that like, well, okay, sure. I mean, they're going to try to chip away at national sovereignty. Sure. But they're, you know, they can't succeed unless the nation state wants them to, uh, you know, what, what's the, the world health organization doesn't have a military. It's not going to invade if you don't locked down when you're told to. Um, so I appreciated her, uh, her criticisms of a lot of the, um, <clears throat> a lot of what's been going, going on over the internet, uh, and on social media, really screaming that this is the end of, of national sovereignty as we know it. This is the creation of the world government that everybody's been fearful of for so long. I think there was a bit of an overreaction. Now, having said that, clearly, uh, there is a totalitarian tiptoe uh, that's uh, occurring. We've all been watching it happen. The fact that the Biden administration uh, is the one that proposed the amendments doesn't bode well, really, for those of us who live in the United States. Um, clearly, Biden is going to go along with whatever the World Health Organization says. If he's the guy that's making these changes to, to, the, uh, to the organization itself, that's who's empowering the organization's uh, to, to make these recommendations. Um, so, so yes, this is one more step towards centralizing power in these international organizations for sure. But I thought it was important since Susan got in touch with me uh, to really lay down uh, the legalities of all of this and let my listeners understand that um, the World Health Organization, you know, it can't really boss us around. It, it gives them another excuse, certainly, and it's something we should be concerned about. Um, but we still have the ability to stand up for our national sovereignty, and we still have states' rights. We still have a U.S. Constitution. Uh, these things aren't just going away. And like I said before, the World Health Organization doesn't exactly have a military, so they can't force us to do something that we as a country don't want them to do. Um, so I thought that was, uh, it was an important distinction. I wanted to give Susan a chance to uh, express her viewpoint on this and um, also just get the opportunity to really kind of take the deep dive into exactly what's going on because certainly it is more of a power grab. And what I appreciated about her analysis actually was that it's not so much about the sovereignty issue, which is what everybody's talking about, but what it's really doing is creating these binding agreements between the countries. And the countries are going to, you know what she talked about, the money, that the World Health Organization now is attached to billions of dollars in funding. So when a country does declare this state of emergency and the World Health Organization makes this statement, okay, it's a, you know this is a state of emergency of international concern, then all of a sudden tens of billions of dollars are, are, are ushered into the situation. Of course, certain Corporate corporations that are connected to the World Health Organization and their products uh, and all of these protocols then are flipped on, 
that are making hundreds of millions and billions of dollars for all of the people that are involved. And I think that's really where we need to go. We need to continue to be following the money. It's not that the, the sovereignty and the power issue is not important, um, but clearly, yeah, if, if a country doesn't want the World Health Organization's money, if they don't need that corruption, right, <laughs> then uh, if they want to take care of the problem themselves, then they just take care of the problem themselves. They tell the World Health Organization to get out. You know, they've got cops, they've got the military, uh, they've got the power. Um, so, but, but how many countries in the world today, I mean, we see the corruption is so endemic with the, with the uh, International Monetary Fund, with the economic hitmen, with the whole system of colonization. And this, to me, is where the World Health Organization is coming in. It's acting more in, in this financial capacity. It's acting more like, uh, instead of a, the central bank, it's the central, central pharma, central big pharma, to centralize... Uh, like much like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund centralize these currency manipulations, uh, the World Health Organization comes in and centralizes the the quote unquote healthcare uh, system, so that a handful of corporations get access to these billions of dollars. Once these protocols are turned on, uh, then boom, that's where you go, and the local government officials take the bribes. They get their they get their cut for sure, you know. <laughs> And that's how the system works. And I think that's, uh, Susan's right on to point that part of it out and say, hey, this is how the system really functions here. They're going to threaten with sovereignty. And I agree, totalitarian tiptoe, chipping away one step at a time. But I think the central issue, just like Susan said, uh, is really about the whole financial centralization of the whole thing and these protocols that get switched on. And then all of a sudden we're talking about these billions of dollars that these corporations have access to. Um, so, you know, one step at a time. I also want to mention it is now May 24th and the uh, World Health Organization Assembly is actually voting uh, on all of this as we speak. This is the week that it's, uh, it's going on and I have heard just some preliminary reports that 13 of the 15 amendments have been, and what I heard was rejected. Uh, what I think is that they probably, what Susan was talking about, the problems with the language, uh, that some countries uh, had issue with the language of the amendments, and now those amendments are going to require a two-thirds uh, vote uh, of the assembly. Um, so there's still some time, there's still some time to go, and apparently, though, the good news is that uh, a lot of people did get the news out. There were a lot of complaints about what was in those amendments, and it is affecting uh, the outcome. So, um, you know, potentially, although, I, again, the totalitarian tiptoe happens uh, one small step at a time. This might be a fairly giant leap, but they'll keep it coming. Like, it's going to take a major, major shift uh, to, to really change things in the long term, but maybe here in the short term we have slowed this one down because uh, enough of us uh, have had enough, uh, enough, <laughs> right? Enough of the pandemic, enough of the pandemic treaty, enough of giving the World Health Organization this kind of power to to mess with our country the way as much as they already have. Um, so anyway, uh, it was great to have Susan on. Uh, and I'm glad that I was able to get kind of in-depth on this. Maybe I'll get in touch with James Rugowski, who um, was a little bit more concerned. He was the guy that kind of broke the story. Uh, and maybe I'll have him on uh, either the shift or uh, have him on to discuss this uh, on one of the uh, Breaking the News episodes that I've got, that I've got going on these days uh, with Captain Wardrobe. 
And uh, I'll just let you know uh, that I my next interview for next week is with Bianca Ruling. She has a book out on how to activate your pineal gland. She's a yoga instructor, among other things. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna get into some spiritual stuff next week and get a little bit away from the politics. I gotta say, uh, it's been getting me down, been dragging me down a little bit since COVID, since the Ukraine. I'm almost getting I can't getting to where I can't even listen to the mainstream media at all anymore because none of it makes any sense at all. Uh, so I think maybe doing a couple episodes and focusing more on the spiritual side of things might be a, a healthier way forward. So, um, stay tuned for those and, uh, we'll catch up with you guys soon. All right. Thanks for listening. Take care.